This, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Liv Oaf. Today we're bringing you a show about otherness, the phenomenon that Simone de Beauvoir once described this way. The category of the other is as primordial as consciousness itself. In the most primitive societies, in the most ancient mythologies, one finds the expression of a duality, that of the self and the other. So what do we do? What can we do? When we find ourselves occupying this curious role of the other, defined so wholly by our exclusion. In a story about, as Beauvoir would say, declining to be the other, refusing to be a party to the deal, Second Story is proud to present Carla Rivera. Papi, daddy, father, papa. I've spent the greater part of my life wading through my feelings of not being able to put any of these terms to use when I was growing up. In the late 70s, my young 19-year-old mother fell in love with a charming GI who, after his tour in Vietnam, became an incredibly persuasive post-war recruiter. I was born a year or so later in Puerto Rico. A couple of months after that, they were married. In the only photo I have of the two of them together, disco was alive and so was their love. My father wears a white leisure suit and my mom wears this floral wrap shirt, platforms and holds a cigarette as they embrace like cool kids in front of the BMW he bought when he was stationed in Germany. Two years later, he became a Pentecostal preacher, was building a new family, and my mom and I were on a plane to Chicago to rebuild our lives after their divorce. When I was little, I would inquire about my father. Mom would say, I'm your mother and your father, and the conversation would end there. In the early 80s, divorce still carried a heavy stigma, and no one in my family could get it together to tell me why he wasn't in my life. The neighborhood kids were relentless in their teasing, so I began to make up stories to explain his absence. He's still in Vietnam being a war hero. How about thank you? <laughs> He's busy managing Menudo while they're on tour. You want tickets? He's in the forest building me a house that looks like the Ewok village, and when it's done, you're not invited. Anything to keep these kids off my back. What was worse, my own cousins fueled the flames. No, he's not, my cousin David would say. Your parents are divorced, and he's never coming back. For as long as I can remember, my wish was to have a family the way the Brady Bunch family ties and the Huxtables would tell it. This picture-perfect nuclear family, the loving dad, the stern mom, the bothersome sibling who never wanted you around but had your back if you got picked on. And they were all so rational. It was fantasy and intangible that I spent my entire life trying to create with a series of alternate relationships like a choose-your-own-ending book. It started with the annual manhunt man hunt for my dad, Esteban. Every summer and sometimes Christmas, we would go to Puerto Rico. It was and still is my happy place. And even though I haven't had an official residence there in over 30 years, I often still refer to it as home. At some point in the middle of our time at the beach and connecting with the island, the good times would be interrupted. My mom and I would get in the car and drive to his mother's house. 
She would yell from the locked gate at the foot of the stairs that led to my estranged grandmother's home. I would sit in the car, my stomach in knots. Let her not be home, let her not be home. I would just say over and over again, let her not be home. Eventually, she would open the window, then her door. Carmencita, she would say, feigning excitement. My mother would signal for me to come out like a proof of life. Hola, mi niña, she would say, as if she were a real grandmother of any kind. She would come down, gate still locked, and my mother would hand her a piece of paper with a phone number. After the brief exchange, she would go back into her house and make a call. Minutes later, she'd yell down at us, Te llamaste tarde, letting us know we would get a call in the evening. The result would be an awkward visit, a sleepover I didn't want in a home filled with strangers. In some instances, I'd watch him perform, I mean preach, at the megachurch, Cristo Viene, or in countryside shacks where people spoke in tongues and fell to their knees in spiritual surrender after his hand would touch their heads in forgiveness. The man had stage presence, that's for sure. But even as a little girl, I never understood who or what would put him in a position to forgive the sins of others. At the end of these visits, my father would always hand me a gift, usually something really impersonal, a teddy bear, candy, something you would give to a child you don't know. Meanwhile, his other kids, they had a home, cable, multiple bedrooms, a backyard, a father. The closest thing I had to a father was my Uncle Samuel, a Harvard-educated Afro-Rican with a booming voice that always made me think, this is what Darth Vader would have sounded like if he was Puerto Rican. <laughs> On weekends, he would take me with him to work at Northeastern Illinois University. We'd run through empty hallways and underground tunnels until we arrived at his office, adorned with mementos from his travels to the Pacific, the Caribbean, and Asia. We'd eat cold Snickers bars while he graded papers, and I sat on the floor of his office reading Charlie in the Great Glass Elevator, carefully folding the top edge of the page I'd leave off at for the next visit. He'd often say to me, we are inseparable, and I'd call him Mr. Cool. He took me to Disney World, gave me straight talk about Jim Crow, and never sugarcoated the challenges I would face as a young Puerto Rican. He taught me how to play dominoes, and as an adult, imparted his love for aged rum. When I was 10, he and his first wife divorced, and he spent the summer living with my mom and I in our one-bedroom apartment. It was the first time I ever had two parental figures under one roof, and for those short few weeks, I didn't mind sharing the sofa bed with my mom. The happy bubble I was in popped more quickly than I wanted it to one afternoon after begging over and over for him to let me go with him to take my cousins to dinner. Carlita, I'm going to spend time with my kids. My uncle took on the role of being the dad in my life, but he was still not my dad. Papa, my, brother, my younger brother Jorge yelled out of the car. It was Christmas, 1993. I was 16. My father was on wife number seven, and there were seven total siblings, three of which lived on the island. 
He had a brand new house in an upper middle class neighborhood. And what I remember noticing the most about their home was the windows. They open and close like giant blinds and are usually made out of metal or aluminum, but these were glass. This was a big deal back then. It was a status symbol, being fancy. As I sat in their bright, spotless living room, I noticed that my siblings, they had the latest Nintendo game system, cool clothes, and even his stepchildren were outfitted with similar gifts. We all scrunched up in the back of his Jeep and headed to the Mayagüez Mall to see Sister Act 2. After dinner at what I think is the only Ponderosa that still exists to this day, he handed me a small gift, a coffee mug with a teddy bear inside of it. When I showed my mom what he had given me after what I saw at his house, I wasn't just mad, I was hurt. You could tell my mom was at the end of her rope and in what would be her last effort to try to shift my sadness at another half-ass visit, she said, give him the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't know you. This could be a great opportunity to, for that. So, so we made a plan to get him to the Mayagüez Mall to show him the present I really wanted. The early to mid-90s were all about rollerblades, and there was no room in my mom's budget for that. And if there was anyone on the planet that needed to have rollerblades, it was me. My twin cousins, Daniel and David, had booked their first feature film, Airborne, starring Jack Black and Seth Green, and rollerblading was everything in this movie. I needed to have these. So when my mom, bio dad, and I meet at the Mayagüez Mall, I cut right to the chase. Bobby, it was so weird to say it. I've been thinking a lot about this present you gave me and I wanted to give you a chance to see what kind of things I like. And so I'm wondering if you can buy me these. I put on the rollerblades and I wobble back and forth through the store. We tally up the cost at the register. We were so close. And then he says, well, I have to talk to my wife. We don't really have money for that. A montage of all the gifts I saw at his house played over and over in my head as he tried to explain that his money wasn't his and the explaining went on and on and on and I just couldn't take it. You've never done anything for me. And I just leaned into him, pushing him to explain how he could justify what I saw at his house while telling me he had no money. And then my mom joined in, and the two of us were airing every grievance, every shortcoming, and challenging him to explain himself. That night, I began to second guess what I had done at the mall. Maybe I shouldn't have gone in so hard on him. Maybe I should just be happy getting what I get. I sat at the foot of the stairs of the hotel next to this payphone in the middle of all of the action in the small beach town of Boquerón. I called him and I couldn't believe what he was telling me. He said what happened at the mall affected him so much he had to go straight to his doctor who said in the name of his health he should not see us anymore. I hung up slowly and through my tears I shared with my mom what he said. She then got in her car and drove away. I stay at the foot of the stairs, kind of in a fog, happy beachgoers passing me by. Maybe 20 minutes later, the payphone rings. Once, twice, three times, I pick it up. 
Tu mamá está aquí, no la voy a dejar entrar. It was wife number seven. <laughs> my mom was in front of their house, trying to get in to talk to my dad. Here's his wife with his ex-wife at the door, his daughter on the phone, and he's in the bedroom protecting his health. I've been through this. I know what you're going through, she says to me, like it's supposed to make me feel better. Then why are you with him? I hear her speaking to my mom. It's muffled. And then, crash. Voy a llamar a la policía. And then the phone hangs up. I call back, but there's a continuous busy signal. I hang up and I sit at the foot of the stairs, not knowing what to think, not really knowing who to reach out to. Man, the great glass elevator would be amazing right about now. The phone rings. I'm crying. Hello? Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, Carla, that son of a bitch. It was my mom. Oh, Carla, it was beautiful. With a mix of fascination and what the fuck, I ask, what did you do? No one fucks with my kid. What did you do? No one makes my daughter cry. What did you do? Oh my God, Carla, it was beautiful. That son of a bitch. We're going for ice cream. I'll be there in a few minutes. Click. <laughs> I try to hold it together and focus on the fact that at some point, ice cream will be had. She picks me up and she's got this face. She puffs on a cool, I wanted one too. I went there to talk to your father. I wanted to talk to him, pero esta pendeja, his wife, wouldn't open the door. So I went to the car, I opened the trunk, and Carla, it was the best throw I ever made. I took that mug, that cheap 50 cent piece of shit, and Nana, it was so beautiful. I didn't mean to break all the windows. That perfect, shiny, expensive glass, the windows they were so proud of, one single throw from my mom shattered every single one. The way my mom described it, you would think she was talking about that final home run in the movie The Natural. <laughs> I was mortified. But there was also a part of me that was really proud and wanted to go do a drive-by. <laughs> I was quiet most of that night, eating my feelings through a big cu cup of coconut pineapple ice cream. I was glad no one was hurt. I was glad my mom wasn't arrested. Despite the years that would follow, all of the dark feelings I would wade through where I blamed myself, the void I would fill with food, rum, bad poetry, and failed relationships with salt and pepper haired men. In that moment, I was relieved that after that day, we would never go and search for him again. This story was curated by Earl McLaurin and Margaret Marion, directed by Amanda Delheimer, and music and sound design by Brandon Reed. The Second Story podcast is produced by me, Liv Oath. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a City Arts Grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Chicago Community Trust, Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Arts Work Fund for Organizational Development, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Liv Loaf, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.